Sales conversations where both buyers and sellers win are rare and plagued by the cringe. We've all felt it. It's that sinking feeling that both buyer and seller get when the conversation is going off the rails. My name is Adam Clay. I'm the CEO of Rainmakers. I've spent 25 years building and leading global sales organizations and thinking about the sales conversation. At The Cringe, we put the sales conversation under the microscope and explore pathways to ensuring that sales reps, leaders, and managers conduct great sales conversations. Today, my guest is Damian Saunders, Chief Revenue Officer of Cambridge Spark. Damian, welcome to the show. Adam, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So I'm a big fan of the series. Well, thank you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about Cambridge Spark and the kinds of conversations you have. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. So, um, you know, we, we live in a we live in a world that's that's looking at technology and data in a very different way. It's a kind of once in a generational shift. And there's this wave of companies now that are emerging where the world is almost too interesting for them not to exist. So so Cambridge Spark is is a is a um, a technology education innovator. We work in the area of data and AI for for leading companies who um, not only want to take their existing workforce and reskill them, but want to become a destination point for folks in their early careers who want to to build up their capabilities in this kind of new world, this new world of tech. So you know we're we're getting into conversations about everything from from um, taking an existing workforce and making them more data literate through to working with senior executives and organizations that that want to become uh, innovators in the, in the world of data. So from a sales conversation perspective, I think it's this, um, combination of, of, of being connected to strategic imperatives in these larger, in these larger companies, um, as well as having this focus on, on the investment in people that give us access to the C-suite, like nothing else I've, I've worked with before, uh, which in itself means that when we're there, we don't want to, we don't screw it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I, I know uh, from having worked together uh, and being familiar with your background that you've worked for companies, big and small companies that sell to large enterprises through long sales cycles to companies that operate at a much higher velocity. Uh, selling to end users at a more transactional pace. So Damien, we start all conversations on this show with the same question. In a sales conversation, what makes you cringe? So I can, um, I can, I can give you an example. I can give you an example of something that drives me crazy, but that you hear all the time, you probably do it. I still can't stop myself from doing it. But, uh, but every time I hear it, my brain balls in my head and I want to die. And it's this. Um, imagine that you're in, a, you're, in a, you're in a sales call and you're running a presentation or a demo and you realize that you've just gone a little long and maybe the audience might, you might be in danger of losing them. They could be tuning out. So you just want to do that basic courtesy of stopping and starting to get the conversation going again. And a common way of doing it is this, is to say, uh, look, at this point, I just want to pause 
And um, I want to see if you have any questions. Do you have any questions? Right. You're familiar with that? That scenario? It sounds familiar oh, yeah. to you? I, I have to say, I'm occasionally guilty of it myself. And uh, I've seen it. I've seen it before. So why does that, why does that make you cringe? It's the silent killer. And it, it, it makes me of the, of the sales conversation. And it makes me cringe because well, a couple of things. First of all, that's a closed question. That's a closed question. And, and there are only one of two possible ways in which it can be answered. And one of them is, yes, I have questions, but that means I've got to get my, my system-driven mind going. I've got to assemble those questions might be. I will think about what I want to say to you. And most people, most people's minds are lazy. And a heuristic response in most sales calls, particularly if you're in the process of kind of tuning out, you may not be paying attention for the last 30 seconds, is to say, is to say no. No. No, no, I don't have any questions. As you were, carry on. And, you know, we've missed an opportunity to have sent, to, to say something different. We could have said something different. I think the, the habit of, of pausing the conversation and you know, bringing the buyer back in is a good one. But, uh, but if we make the mistake of, of asking a closed question, of not, of not thinking of a smart question that we could, have, we could have asked there that gets the brain working and gets the, gets the buyer into a conversation with us, then, then we've, we've uh, committed a cardinal sin and it just it drives me nuts whenever I hear that said. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, I like that. So that's a, that's a new piece of insight shared. We've not heard that before on the show. And I, and I have to say that when the response is no, as it often, as it often is, it, it does send the salesperson or the sales team in the room or in that call sort of scrambling because you have to recover from what is generally sort of a deflating moment. But I would argue that the seeds of of your own deflation were planted in the question. I'd love to role play the alternative as we do at, at the end of the show. So let's circle back. So let's, let's shift gears. I know that you as a sales and revenue leader have involved, have been involved in a fair number of, dare I say, sales transformations, meaning you're joining organizations, and part of your remit is to transform the sales team, the sales culture. And as a function of that, the type of sales conversation salespeople are expected to have with, with the market. So let's, let's hear your take on some of the key components of undertaking a sales transformation. When you move an organization from one state, one type of conversation to another. So, um, commonly, commonly when you, when you encounter something like that, what is happening is the, the company has grown to a point where it needs to scale. And at that point in its evolution, there's typically something that you would find. You and I have both done this coming into, into upscale, high growth, high velocity sales organizations is that the existing team and the existing sales leaders are all of a type. And and some of the, I have to say, like some of the best salespeople, some of the best salespeople I've ever encountered in my career 
can be found in small companies. These these original sellers, the original crew that you know figured out how to go to market and figured out how to have have effective sales conversations with the buyer, and they are like um, craftsmen. They're like sort of artisans of a trade. Like they've had so many iterations, so much practice in having these conversations that they are magnificent. But they become the first line of leaders as the business starts to grow. And then that brings with it a um, a unique challenge because these are people who are tasked with building a performance culture, as you would expect in any sales organization, <clears throat> where you've got to you've got to build a team of 10, 20, 30 people quickly, and you've got to you've got to keep pace with the growth of the company. So if you are one of those artisanal sellers that you've you've learned your craft then you've got to think about how do i and if it took me two or three years to do that then how do i how do i get a group of 10 or 20 salespeople that have just hired to become effective in 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 eight to ten weeks because that's that's typically the you know the, the ramp time at which you want them to become proficient so the the the, the challenge that lots of lots of people like you and I have when they go into organizations like that is that there are a group of people around you that are responsible for creating this performance culture and to and to, and to uh, equip a group of salespeople to go out there and have effective and structured sales conversations because that is the only way to do it who themselves have a different belief system and and the and the trick the trick is to is to take everything that we know that makes us successful as experienced leaders with lots of exposure and practice to, 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 to conversations to ourselves, change our belief system so that we can, we can do what we're asking others to do. Do you know what I mean? And it's, 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 it's one of those fundamental aspects of leadership is let them see you do it. Now, you know, I know that I could take a two or three year veteran in a high growth software company and I could put them in front of any customer, they would be incredible. But if they're if they're going along with one of their new reps and the new rep sees them do that, that's a that's a soul crushing experience. You know, that I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that as the new rep, I'm gonna watch that sales leader perform in front of a customer and thinking and think that is a superhuman quality. I I cannot go into my next sales call and do what I just saw that person do. However, if that, as experienced as they may be and as and as, as much of an expert in, in the subject matter as they may be, if that sales leader takes that, that, that new addition to their sales team, goes out into a real-world sales call and delivers a structured conversation, a structured conversation that can easily be replicated that generates good results, different results, but good results as a consequence of that discussion. That is the as the new intake into the sales team are thinking, I could do that. I could I could go out and give me give me three or four shots at it, and I reckon I can become pretty good at uh, at, uh, at doing exactly what I've just seen my sales leader do. I'm coming out with that with that kind of sense of confidence that this is something I can master quickly. All right. Thank you for that. So a, a lot to talk about. Let me take them one at a time and double click on a couple of, of topics. Um, so you talked about the underlying 
belief system as a critical component of undertaking a transformation, helping an organization go from one conversation to another in the context of, of our show. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like what would an example of a belief system be that would then need to change, you know, in the leaders, uh, in the salespeople who may have been there for a while. Tell us about that. A performance culture is no different to any other type of culture. It exists in three levels. And, and this, I think, is one of the popular misconceptions is that it's a singular thing, but it's not. A culture is, is, is three things. And a culture is the articles and artifacts. And an example of that will be the selling met methodology, the sales methodology that you put in place and the, and the um, planning documents and the processes that you build. The second level is the rights and rituals, the norms and values of, of running a, a performance-based organization. So that would be the um, recognition of rewards, the financial incentives that you would give that you would give salespeople. And that's typically where the story ends, just at those two levels. And then you know what happens next, right? Is that is that the experienced leaders in the sales organization just go with their belief system, what they know and trust. And then you have that scenario that I described to you where you have you have the veteran salespeople doing one thing and the and the and the new intakes kind of struggling to try and find their own way. And then and then everything else that you've got on top of that, the kind of the the normal practices and those artifacts that sales methodology and the selling system put in place. What tends to happen that is that the the sales leadership team only bring it out on special occasions. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, uh, the sales methodology is kept in a reliquary that is that is only brought out ceremoniously for things like uh, pipeline reviews and and QBRs and that type of thing. It's not something that is that is that has become embedded into the belief system of everyone in the organization simply because the leadership team themselves are not believers of it. So, so it 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 it, it falls on the veteran salespeople. It falls on the sales leaders to unfreeze their belief systems that which which are founded on on good principles. Like as I say, this is they're not wrong, but they are very effective at what they do. But they have to unfreeze that belief and then and then embrace the structured sales conversation that they want everyone else to to exhibit, do the, do it themselves, let the sales team see them do it. And then that's when it becomes that shared belief system, that fundamental foundational part of any performance culture. And then and then once that becomes a, a, a muscular reflex, just the way in which everybody in the organization would go into any conversation with a customer and behave, then everything else makes sense. Then suddenly all the norms and values, all of the methodologies, all of the, the systems for review that you have become just a natural part of how the business op operates and performs. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. So you've taken us through, you know, what what you believe are sort of the key ingredients of a high performing sales culture. And if I understood you correctly, the bedrock that underpins everything without which no transformation is possible is going to be the belief system. So let, let's take it to an example of what a prior and post belief system might look like for, for the audience who might not be as sort of familiar with these topics as, as you are. What's an example of a belief system before and a belief system after that 
has been asked to change for the betterment of everybody's everybody's performance. So I think you'd, you'd recognize it instantly as being that dual standard. Um, so that there is, so you don't have, it, it, it's a lot easier to see these days because we have conversational intelligence tools. So we're able to you know, look at how everybody is is having conversations with with uh, with buyers, at least if it's happening in in a in a Zoom call or it's happening in a you know, video conferencing format, so it can it can be captured. Then you'll see that your standard, you'll see you'll see the the you know the experienced, accomplished sellers in the organizations, the sales leaders, who are those you know natural um, who are natural at having conversations that come get deep into the capabilities of the product and the you know the world of the of the buyer and the and the technology and um you know i'd i'd to give you an example of what of what good looks like i'm i'm going to borrow a, a tip from the world of uh, drug dealers who say who say you should never get high on your own supply right there is a there is a danger of becoming high on your own supply and that and that is what happens i think when you become like too ingrained in the world of the tech and the product and you know, as, as fascinating and as meaningful and as rewarding to the buyer as those conversations may be, they just draw us away from what is important. And and what is interesting is, you know, there have been occasions I've seen where where highly experienced veteran product sellers get engaged with customers and then actually really struggle to manage sales cycles when it comes to things like calling a forecast and and uh, you know, defeating an aggressive competitor because they just don't have the right command of sale like they've 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 in, in, in established credibility and, and trust and and rapport with the buyer but have you know, simply forgotten one or two of, or, or just omitted one or two of the fundamentally important things about having a sales conversation and then and then the, you know the flip side is that you know if you're not if you're not hard in the supply and and you know you have that sort of clarity of purpose which is I'm going into a sales conversation. There are these five things that I need to establish. You know, I need to establish uh, basic credibility and trust, which I can do simply by proving that I'm good at my job. I need to you know, diagnose the need. And then the obvious questions, which is, how does your organization buy something like this? Who would, they might feel left out if they were not part of this conversation? And so these, these are basic conversational structures that even a relative novice who is not familiar with the subject matter can still be an empathetic listener and give the prospect a good experience and come away with command of sale, knowledge of the buyer's universe, and you know, effectively effectively give the give the buyer a good experience and and carry out their tasks as a sales professional well, in the absence of any sort of deep experience. I think that's a very powerful insight. And you know, over the course of episodes of the cringe today it's not one that we we heard so i i want to spend even more time on this because there's some nuance here so let me take a shot at just restating what i heard so most organizations um particularly when they're when they're a bit more youthful or perhaps even large organizations that haven't revisited the topic of how they have a sales conversation in a while they they find themselves and it's not good or bad and it's not right or wrong you know dependent upon sellers who have achieved almost a magical or mystical 
and very well could be effective blend of product knowledge, technical knowledge, market knowledge, and understanding of what's on the mind of the customer. You refer to them as artisanal salespeople, and they might be the top reps in the company. Your point is when it comes to transformation, particularly when accompanied by scale, that's a very difficult thing to replicate. And so it would be tempting for organizations to just replicate what's working in the hands of highly skilled artisanal sellers, but that's going to be virtually impossible to do. And so your recipe is to create a structured conversation that would allow perhaps less experienced people, certainly less experienced in that organization, if not less experienced outright, to be as effective by doing some things that you believe in, which is having a conversation, asking questions, understanding the buyer's perspective, where they are on their journey, what's important to them. And as something that is more scalable, I think we can all agree that that's more scalable. But to tie it back to this notion of a belief system, you also have to believe that this new way of doing things in the context of a transformation is actually the right thing to do. And I think what you're putting your finger on is that people might give attention to that belief, but they might not actually internalize it. And that's often seen in sales managers who have been around the organization for a while, the artisanal sellers themselves who have been very successful in the organization. And it's that friction that's going to make a transformation in the way sellers have conversations from craft to scalable more difficult. Now that is a very long-winded recap, but I think it's such an important point. What can you add to that? You've made me think of a couple of things. And one of them is that, of course, this isn't something that is unique just uh, to, to young uh, growth phase companies. I'll give you an example of where you would see it actually in, in, in established companies. And, and it's this, it's when you bring out a new product. It's when you, it's when you change the, the environment so that even the veteran sellers find that the conversations that they've, they've learned to craft over those many, many, many iterations over several years don't work anymore because you're now selling a security product or you're now selling a product that, that, uh, is only relevant to the, um, um, VP of software development to this stuff or whatever it may, may be. Suddenly the, the scenarios change. And then you'll be familiar with this because I think we've seen it lots and lots of times that the new product really struggles to embed. It really struggles to embed. And, hmm. and the, what is happening is, is the sales team who have been used to, to framing the conversation around their areas of expertise and that's how they, they add value to the buyer are suddenly finding that that technique isn't working anymore. So, um, so the, it takes a long time that that practice that it takes a long time for them to then recraft the conversation around something that they're familiar with that they can start to kind of find a way of of, of making this new product product work. Whereas again, if you just had that structured conversation, if you just had the, the basics we were talking about earlier, that any should form the form the the, the backbone of any good sales call. Then even if you took a brand new product and put it straight out there, as long as you know roughly what it is, the problem that it solves for your buyer, then you can use those techniques to, 
you know, probe for pain and you know, identify what the what the potential opportunity um, might be from the, the buyer's side to 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 qualify in or out. That's what we're there to do at the end of the day. Secondly, if it if it helps you any, I can draw from my own personal experience because I spent um, the first half of my career in enterprise in enterprise sales, build, building up value propositions over sell cycles that lasted lasted years in some in some cases. Uh, and then I, you and I, our paths collided when we were both working in a in a in a you know, fast growth um, mid sized software company. And my belief systems were all built built around this ability to build up you know, rapport and trust and credibility over many 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 uh, meetings and and uh, interactions with the buyer. And then suddenly it's reduced down to that kind of real estate that I get the exposure to the buyer that I had is much, much smaller. And, you know, not only do I need to do all of my selling within that just two or three meetings, but I also have to do my job as a salesperson. So I have to I have to qualify. I have to understand the buyer's needs. I have to understand the buyer's process. I need to understand time scales. I need to uh, move the goalpost to a point where the competition can't score against me. So I need to do my job as a as a as a competitive salesperson, but I had to do all of that in like two Zoom calls. So yeah, I don't have the opportunity to to build up the build up that that um, that uh, credibility, a basis of credibility and trust. I just have to show up and be good at my job. And it took me a long time to change my own my own belief system so that I could sell I could sell that way. But once I once I myself realized what that was able to do for me. But more importantly, when I realized what it was, what it empowered me to do with my people. So as a 20-year veteran of business-to-business sales, actually just go out and have a simple structured sales conversation and let my sales team do it. That for me was like discovering some kind of steroid, like some kind of performance-enhancing drug that allowed me to outperform uh, others, but it was legal. I'm not breaking any laws to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that. So let's let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how organizations might absorb new products into the sales team. And so you said something there that put me in mind of something I think that many people who listen to the show can. Will, will recognize, you know, very often, you know, marketing teams or enablement teams will introduce products in a way that might be defined as classical, standard uh, narrative associated with the new offering, right? I'm an insurance company and here's a new line. I'm a software company, here's a new product. Uh, I'm an automotive company. Here's a, here's a new car. And the way it's deployed is going to be very heavy on product features, product benefits, how this stuff stacks up against the competition. And there is a, there is a temptation, I think, that a classic new product deployment creates uh, with sales organizations that sort of brings them backward. And that is now it's my job just to talk about this new product. And don't you think that that 
when new product is introduced, it's got to be done in a way that is mindful of the types of conversations the sales team is actually being asked to have by their revenue leaders, uh, by their sales their sales managers, which is to say, if I do a product and a feature and a benefit and a competitive analysis dump onto the sales team, now it's on them to understand how they might weave that into a conversation through the use of statements designed to help the buyer understand how other buyers have been helped through provocative questions, for example, that might, might reveal for the buyer uh, ideas about how this new product might be used. That seems to still be a little broken. Am I right about that? Or am I just out of touch with the way things are done today? Not at all. Um, and I've encountered, I've encountered unfortunately exactly what you're describing. And it's a, it's a, it's a funny issue because what tends to happen is the heads of product management, the heads of, of product marketing in anticipation of of bringing the product to market, that classic kind of ready aim fire that happens before you launch, normally turn up to the conversation with the sales team with all of this beautiful stuff that they've built, and it's a twenty slide deck that um, that describes the gap in the market that we've identified, uh, you know how we want to talk about all the things are exciting and. And the sales team themselves are getting are getting pretty jazzed about it because usually when you bring a new product to market, you're thinking, that's what my buyers want. And I can't wait to tell them all about it. And it takes great restraint to try and sort of tamper all this thing, all this stuff down so you can still sort of do your job as a salesperson. So just just in this last year, this the same situation played out when I'm sitting with the VP of product marketing. And he's saying to me, like, here is all of these incredible messages and stories that we, you know, we want to get out in front of, in front of the um, uh, the buyer, and we've had to find a way of stitching it into the into the structured conversations that we would always and still want to have. And and what it came down to at the end was reaching a reaching a compromise in which I said, there's only really one place in any discovery call where a new product would live and it's in those it's in the solution definition and it's in the differentiator probes that you would use i'll give you i'll give an example so um if it's an innovation or if it's a if it's a new idea um which often it is if you want to bring to your buyer you'd say something like this which is okay well you know you've described in your own words what it is that you're looking for however i couldn't help noticing that there are a couple of things you didn't mention that that are commonly occurring in other conversations with 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 professionals in your kind of role that I'm having, and I just want to share that insight with you, and you know, you tell me whether or not this is something that that does or doesn't resonate. And of course, then what you're doing is doing that basic feature benefit pitch, which is all you really need for that new product. So the buyer the buyer then is thinking. Um, uh, what's that you're saying? What are other people? What, what's going on out there? What's the buzz I'm missing? And what you're and what you're diving into is the number one reason why any buyer would see a salesperson in the first place, which is that they might learn something they didn't already know. They they know that salespeople are ultimately gossips. Uh, we we spend that time if your if your buyer is the 
is the chief technology officer. Um, as, a, as a salesperson, you'll be talking to chief technology officers three or four times a day. Um, but when but when you are a chief te technology officer, you don't talk to chief technology officers except if you're at a trade show or a conference or or uh, um, or something of that sort. So along comes along comes Adam, and Adam's talking to four or five technology chief technology officers a day. And I want to know what's you know what's the buzz? What are other people doing? What is what is the the you know the latest idea um, that that uh, I may not be aware of? And that's what we're tapping into. With that, with that conversation about our new product, we're just ever so subtly just suggesting that there is a new big idea out there. That of course, you know, our product is there to that's the problem that we want to fix, but that's how we do it. And so it takes it does take a lot of restraint not to go in gung ho and say, "I've got this thing. You're gonna you're gonna love it," uh, and instead just feel out whether or not the problem that you're solving with that new product is present in the buyer, and if it is. Then they're going to tell you that they want it, but but that's that's the that's that kind of classic example of how maintaining discipline in the conversational structure will allow you to sell your new product. That's very that's very well said, and you know I'm thinking about you know many of the revenue leaders and enablement or learning and development leaders, and occasionally marketing leaders that that um, in my role I get to talk to every day, and it's remarkable how much sales transformation is is underway at the conversational level and i think what this what this discussion is is revealing and like I, and it's a it's a cool pearl of wisdom i think mined out from your experience in undertaking this you know probably four or five times with different organizations is that the belief system the sales organization needs to have about what constitutes a good sales conversation, why you're going to have it, needs to be equivalently believed in by the groups that are going to support the sales organization. Marketing, product, learning and development. And if and if there and that's that's hard. If there's not good alignment there, then you know, the salespeople themselves will be will be required to interpret what's been given to them in terms of a new product, a new service, or a new capability in a way that's useful for them. And that is, that'll happen over time, but it could be done so better, so much better, more efficiently and, uh, and much faster. So Damien, I want to, I want to come back to, uh, something that I had mentioned when I introduced you to listeners. And it has to do with your background. You've worked for big companies and you've worked for small companies. You've worked for companies that sell complex enterprise solutions to sophisticated enterprise buyers. And you've sold uh, solutions that are purchased closer to the end user level, if not at the end user level. And there's a, there's a temptation, I think, to assume that Structure is important when you're talking about complex sales cycles, but a little less important conversationally when you're dealing with uh, buyers that may have had a chance to try out your software already or buyers that are just looking to purchase something because they've used your software in a, in a premium or PLG motion. And so this concept of meeting buyers where they are, giving them what they want because they're pretty far down the road already 
in the buying cycle in their own mind. They've tried your software, they've tested your software, they've been using it. But in order to get a deal done in a way that's good for the company, sometimes the sale, seller has to sort of say, well, hold on, I just need a little bit more information. Like I've got to have a structured conversation here to make sure that my company understands a few things. And so, so your experience, I think, has put you uh, into situations where you had to contend with the concept of really meeting buyers in a high velocity sales cycle where they are with a structured conversation. Can you talk a little bit about an example of how that came together in your, your recent or not too distant experience? It's a new topic here at, at the cringe. Go ahead. I think actually it's something you, regardless of experience, we are all encountering now. And um, it's because the, the buyer in their decision-making process is now able to get so much of the information that they need in digital content that by the time they talk to the, the salesperson, there's only really a couple of things that they need to find out before they decide. And I'll say it another way, you know, back in, back in the days of traditional enterprise software sales, the buyer would arrive with the salesperson knowing very little. So therefore, the expectation of the buyer was, I need the salesperson to give me the show, right? I want the, I want the vision deck. I want the exciting demo. I want the, the solutions workshop. And those sort of things, you know, in, in true enterprise sales cycles still happen today. But in the world of SaaS, that happens very rarely. And your buyer's been on to Trustradius, on to G2 Crowd, on to Garda Peer Insights. They've read your website. They've read the buyer's website. They've seen your interactive demo. And now in, in, in the um, possession of most of what they need to decide, they just, they just want those last couple of things. And those last couple of things that they have to talk to the sales team about is usually price, right? And some kind of demo deep dive. So the challenge that gives the seller is how do I deliver precisely those two things without the buyer believing that that's all I'm good for? Because if they, if they come away from that meeting hmm. with me thinking that as a salesperson, all I'm good for is a demo at a price, I'm not going to get them on the phone again. You know, I can't, I'm not going to be able to bring them back into a conversation with me <laughs> because I haven't right. had, I haven't had the right. opportunity to add any value to them. I haven't had the opportunity to add value. So, so to go back to your original question, and I'm, I'm, I know I've just restated the, the problem, but, but to get back to the question then of how in light of that being, being common now in, in particularly in SaaS sales, how do we how do we still have a conversation with a buyer where we get to add value? And I think it's about the simple techniques that we can use in any structured sales call, which is um, just a permission to ask. Hey, I, I you know, I'd, I'd love to give you a price, but we've got we've got a price on everything in our portfolio, and I'd love to give you a demo, but we've got we've got thirty features, and I, I don't want to sit here. You're my sky, Adam. I'm not going to subject you to that level of torture. I'm not going to give you a sequential walkthrough of my product. I just want to find out what you're really about. And then I just want to want to show you, because you know, if we can't have that dialogue, I don't know what to show you. I don't know what to show you. So so I think it just comes down, even in even on those really short Zoom calls, just ask a couple of smart questions. Um, you know, seek permission to ask, uh, do those probes, you know, find out and then and then just take that opportunity to say, hey, 
you know, there's a couple of things that we've just discussed in this short meeting that, that I would have expected us to get to that we didn't. And I don't want to go away before I've just shared with you the one or two things that I would commonly expect the conversation to take us towards. And that's those one or two killer features that you've got that you know set you aside from the competition that you just want to lay lay that robe out there and see whether or not the buyer kind of pulls off so you can draw even that short conversation into an area that makes you you know special and unique. And in the process of doing that, give the buyer some valuable insight. You know, let them walk away because they, you know, they came into the conversation thinking that they knew uh, what what the answer looked like based on all of that research that they have done. But you've just given them that that, that the one or two things to think about when they walk away, which means that when you need to talk to them again in another 10 days or you agree that follow-up, they're like, yeah, I'll talk about it again. He, he, uh, he re-engineered my vision a little and I've helped you, any, but that would be my, my approach. That was very good and very insightful. I don't want to speak for the audience, but there are, there are unquestionably some, some insights that I gleaned from what you just said. But let me just let me just tear something apart quickly. So you said, you know, I could just give a demo. I could just give a price, but I need to add some value. So there's a temptation again. I think I've used that word a few times now. Um to say, well, for whose benefit am I going to add that value? Is that value for the buyer's benefit? Or is that value for the benefit of my manager who says, I got to ask these damn questions. Uh, and I'm, I'm deeply afraid that if I don't, <laughs> I'm going to imperil my future at the organization. So I, I, it's rhetorical, but for people who might be newer to these ideas, it might not be as obvious. So for whose value would you veer from just giving a demo and giving a price it's exactly what the buyers want in this example uh for for whose benefit are you creating value yours or the buyers or both in what order so for the buyer it's it's um always obligation before opportunity so so if a if a buyer has gifted us with 30 minutes of their attention span and they've done it because they've come into the conversation with the basic assumption, with the basic assumption that we're going to be good at our job. So we're going to make that 30 minutes that they spend with us a worthwhile investment of, of, of time. We have an obligation to do precisely, to, to do precisely that. So that's, that's the, 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 that's the first of the two, of the two different, um, types of value that we want to get. The first thing is let's add value to the to the buyer because we have an obligation that we've that we've been given as a result of that reward of 30 minutes of their attention span. But you're but you're right. We also have an obligation to the organization that requires us as a as a sales team to first and foremost make good use of the organization's resources, which is our people and our time. So we don't want to fill a sales pipeline full of full of rubbish because we don't know how to where to focus or where to start or where to prioritize. So of course we need to qualify as well. And that's why the manager is asking us to do it. So um so the the most important thing in that meeting is to is to give the buyer what 
what they expect because it's the obligation that we carry. But there is an opportunity, obviously, for us also to uh, to, to qualify the customer and put this opportunity into our into our pipeline in the in the CRM. But make sure that by doing that, we're just not creating chaff. So, Damien, uh, I think by necessity. And you know, in the fullness of the conversation that we're having about sales transformation, at 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 any moment, you might have a sales team that consists of people who are selling the old way and people who are selling the new way. Is that good? Is it bad? Sustainable or uh, or not? So the only thing I would say is is pick your course. They're both good. They're both good. That experience based artisanal selling it has its place in the world. Uh, as does system-based selling. I think the only danger is when you try and conflate the two within a single sales organization because it's it's confusing for the supporting functions. It's it's confusing for sales engineering. It's confusing for, for field marketing. It's confusing for management where they don't understand how the sales team is operating. So the only advice would be would be choose a horse and back it. I like that. I like that. Well said. So Damien, we are, uh, we're nearing the end of the episode. And as is a tradition here on the cringe, we're going to send you out with a role play. And I want to take everybody back to what you said in response to what makes you cringe in a conversation. And we talked about it at the very top of the show. And that is, you know, after a presentation of capabilities or after a demonstration, the salesperson pauses and says, do you have any questions? And we, we contended that the answer most of the time is going to be is going to be no, and that makes you cringe. And so, for the role play, I thought it would be fun to uh, to hear, you know, if not that at the end of a presentation capability overview or a demo, then what? And my guess is this will be a pretty quick role play as a consequence. So let's uh, let's do it. I, I am a buyer at your disposal, and uh, you're the presenting salesperson. Yeah, you're right. Every every time someone asks that question, I'm pretty certain somewhere a fairy dies. So let's so let's stop that and give an example of give an example of what it should go like. So if you're the buyer and I have just done my my killer feature demo, I'm going to I'm going to pause. I'm going to say, Adam, I just want to uh, pause and take a moment, and uh, I'd like to know what feedback you have. And role play. There it is. So the smartest questions are the, are the simplest ones. And, you know, what is happening there is I haven't given you an opportunity to, say, to be lazy and say no. Um, I've given you an opportunity to, to think because you, you'd have to think in response to that question. It would be impossible to answer that question without taking a moment, getting your brain moving, and thinking thinking of a, of a response. You could if you really wanted to give someone a hi-hat and say, I don't have any feedback for you. But it's less likely that they would do that. And it's more likely that they would just give you a flat no if you ask that first question. So it's one of those simple things, like really simple as all smart questions are, that makes all the difference to how the sales conversation ends. All right. Wonderful. Damien Saunders, Chief Revenue Officer of Cambridge Spark, thank you so much for joining us here on The Cringe. Uh, a great conversation and I appreciate it. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed listening, follow me, Adam Clay on LinkedIn. I'm regularly sharing insight and tips on the art of sales and the sales conversation. This podcast is produced and presented 
by Rainmakers, where we believe the sales conversation is everything. Check us out online at rnmkrs.com. Thank you.